0: With that, let's turn our teaching from God's, uh, to, to our teaching from God's Word this morning. I love the teaching series for this month, Misquoted. Some of the common statements from God's Word that, uh, that we tend to misquote. And I'm, <laughs> I was so excited and grateful to be asked to be part of it. Have, have you ever been misquoted? Quite a few years ago now, when I was a young pastor, there was a somewhat controversial issue in the community that a reporter called me to get my perspective on, and uh, as, uh, as the pastor of a prominent church in the region, I consulted with our elders and we decided it was appropriate and, and necessary for me to respond. And, and we talked about uh, what I should say, how I should say it, what I needed to be careful not to say. Uh, and I was as careful as could be, but I was misquoted just a wee bit. Well, actually it was more subtle than being misquoted. It was It was that that only one phrase of one sentence of what I said was used. And the setup in the article for the quote that was used on the front page. Was not the context in which it was said. And it was twisted to actually imply something that I did not really say. He wasn't after my perspective. He was after any little sound bite he could twist to validate his perspective. I still remember some of the feelings I had. I was angry. I felt used (laughs) and I was a little bit afraid of my reputation. Would people really think that I would say or imply that? I wonder if that's how God feels when we misquote him or misuse quotes from him, from his word. When we make it say what we want it to say to suit our purposes at the time. And he's saying, "Uh, that's not really what I said. You're twisting it. One of the classics uh, you talked about last week. Aaron Richard led you in thinking about that whole uh, statement from Jeremiah. I know the plans I have for you. Almost from the moment I, uh, I was asked to teach today, I knew the myth that I wanted to bust. The misquote I wanted us to think about this morning. You ready? God will never give us more than we can handle. Really? Is that true? Does the Bible really say that? It sounds so faith-focused. Or like we're desperately trying to be faith-filled when we say it to ourselves, right? I know the Bible says that God will never give me more than I can handle. It sounds like good news from God we want to hang on to. We desperately try to pump our faith tires by repeating to ourselves, I just got to remember, God will never give me more than I can handle. And then, We say it to somebody else about their situation. And and we want it to sound so hope-giving. They dump on us their problem, and and we don't know what to say. And so we give what we sincerely think is spiritual encouragement. Just remember, God won't give you any more than you can handle. We even say things like, well, you know, this wouldn't be happening if God didn't think you could handle it. God chose you because he knows you're strong enough to handle it. And we leave thinking we've given them hope, at least a positive pep talk. But more often than not, what we see as comfort, they feel as cruel. Folks, if there's, if there's only one takeaway you get from today, please make it that you'll never say that to anyone again. It's really not helpful. But isn't that what the Bible says? Well, kind of, sort of, maybe depending on what you mean by handle and what kind of circumstance you're talking about short answer no it's a misquote it's a twist on what God does say this morning from God's word we're gonna explore that statement by asking three questions number one why might this not be the good news that we think it is Number two, what does God really say? And how is it that what he says is even better good news than what we tend to believe? And number three, how can I live today with faith, hope, and love when life does give me more than I can handle? So number one, why might this not be quite the good news that I think it is? Well, okay, let's just say it. (laughs) Number one, it is not really our experience. There are times when life does give us more than we can handle. It does. And the very author who writes several of the statements in God's word that we twist to make it seem like God says he doesn't give us more than we can handle. That very author, Paul, is quite open about how in his life God did give him more than he could handle. In the book of 2 Corinthians, a book in which Paul opens up about some of the depths of his personal struggles in life he basically said there were times in my life when God allowed things to happen to me even when I was serving him and sometimes because I was serving him that were more than I could handle 2 Corinthians chapter 1 Uh, 2 Corinthians is 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 the, the the most personal letter of any of them that Paul writes he shares about his struggles verse 8 he says We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters. We we want to be transparent with you. We were about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired of life itself. We were under great pressure. In in, in chapter 11 of this book, he, he, he enumerates some of the things that that were caused in pressure. He was frequently imprisoned. And prisons those days were even worse. Than experiences of prison today. He talked about severe floggings. The most severe corporal punishment. In both. Uh, under both Jewish and Roman law. Floggings. That were designed to lead almost to the point of death. And if the person died. Oh well. That That happens. Many times he said he was near death. He goes on and on. Talks about shipwrecks and floods. We were under great pressure. Far beyond our ability to, do, to endure. So that we despaired of life itself. He summarizes it by saying. Verse 9. Indeed we felt. We felt that we had received. The sentence of death from God. Okay that's dramatic. Some people think Paul might also be alluding to experiencing acute circumstantial depression, even with suicidal feelings. Basically, God gave us more than we could handle. If you have your Bibles open or remember this passage, I know what you're saying. Yeah, but look what he says next. End of verse 9. But this happened so that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Doesn't that mean that he could handle it? With God's strength. Well we'll come to that in a little bit. But the fact that he says the only thing that he's counting on. Is that he believes God could raise the dead. What that means is he totally thought he would die. That he would not be able to handle it. That God would not keep him from being crushed. Totally crushed by life. Which points to a second problem. The downstream problem with believing that statement. When we believe God won't give us more than we can handle, although it sounds like a faith-building statement, it actually becomes a faith-eroding belief. Even the way he says it reveals that. Reveals that. Because what do we often, how do we often say it? We say, I know the Bible says God will never give us more than I can handle. But, right? It doesn't fit our experience. That's not our experience. Or just as bad as being a faith eroding statement, it becomes a faith faking kind of statement. We have to pretend like we are handling it and we begin to lie even to ourselves that we are handling it when everyone around us is saying, not really. And we get very defensive when people might imply that we're just faking it. And so because of that, it leads to feelings of guilt. I'm not a good enough Christian. To feelings of jealousy. Why do I have so bad when others have it so easy? And sometimes to giving up on God or just being satisfied with a less than vibrant life that God wants us to know. All, at least partially, Because we've allowed ourselves to believe something God didn't actually mean or imply or say. Okay, so what does God really say? And why is this even better news than believing that he will never give us more than we can handle? Well, let's first look at the statement from God's word that we tend to misquote that makes us think God says he'll never give us more than we we can handle. Um, This statement points to one situation that God promises he won't give us more than we can handle. And oddly enough it's the one situation that we tend to not apply that statement. <laughs> Ready? It comes in Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, the same church. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 13. No temptation he says has taken you. Except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted. Beyond what you can bear. God will not allow you to be tempted. Beyond what you can bear. Now if you've done some digging you will say. Well yeah that word tempted. Can also mean tested. It can refer to things like trials. Trials. Well, that's true, it can, but you don't lump every possible meaning of a word into every single use of a word, ever. We don't do that in our in our common language. When a father and son are in the basement in the springtime, putting winter ski equipment and clothing away, and he says, Can you put this into a trunk? And right beside him is this box with a lid on it that they've been putting clothes into. Can you put this into the trunk? The son will not even think that he can choose which kind of trunk dad might be talking about. Well, if he wants to press his dad's buttons, he might take the stuff and start walking up the stairs into the garage and put it in the trunk of the car. Because, well, you said trunk. We usually know the intended meaning of a word by the the context in which it's used. And the context all through this section in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is Paul saying... Learn from the failures of the people in the past who fell into temptation, who gave into temptation, doing what God clearly said they were not to do, justifying, rationalizing, and saying, what else did you expect me to do? Or, but God also said this. No, the calling of Jesus to walk with him, the presence of the spirit in us, is what allows us to say to ourselves, no, I can resist that urge. I can stop that behavior. I won't let myself use that excuse anymore. I couldn't resist it. What else could I do? Because God will not allow any more temptation than he gives you the power to handle. That's the one circumstance that statement is true. So, Let's pause right there. Are there any things in your life? Attitudes you've adopted? Perspectives you've adopted? Words you've said? Persistent behaviors you've allowed yourself to fall into, get trapped into, or justify keep doing perhaps succumbing to what the Bible calls sexual sin or perversion because you're allowing yourself to think, well, God won't give me more than I can bear. I can't bear it, so it must be okay. God won't allow me more than I can bear, so it must be somebody else's fault. I'll take it out on him. God would want me to look good and feel good, so it must be okay if I do this because it's how I feel. Temptation, the inner desires, the outer distractions, the fallen nature distortions to think, do, and be less than what God created to me to be is the only one place I can say to myself, no, God will not give me more than I can bear. He has given me a standing in Jesus, an inner power through the spirit of Jesus in me to withstand it. So self, not this, not today. I will stand in him and through him and for him. Perhaps you need to re-engage someone in a conversation about it. Like, like someone who came to me recently. Acknowledged that he'd become trapped in behaviors and thinking patterns. That he recognized were sinful. And he, they were wrong. And he wanted to get back on track. You see, part of the good news is not just that God won't give us any more than we can handle. It's that, well, I love the way Paul puts it to Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 13. Even when we are faithless. He remains faithful because he can't deny himself. He's not faithful to us because I don't fail him. He's faithful because of who he is. And part of his faithful is, well, in 1 John chapter 1, he's, he's faithful to forgive and restore and when we experience and we experience that when we confess that we have sinned, we have failed, we have fallen again. So that's the truth about temptation. God doesn't give us more than we can bear and even when we fail he will forgive when we stop excusing ourselves and admit that we have failed God. But there's a major difference between temptation and trials. In temptation we make a choice and there are helpful and unhelpful choices there are better or worse choices and yes there are right and wrong choices but a trial is something different It's something that comes on us that has nothing to do with our choices or sometimes it is a real life inevitable consequence of a choice we made a long time ago that we've asked forgiveness for but we can't undo the consequence or maybe it's something that comes on me because I made a tough right choice and yet I'm still crushed by life in a way that I can't bear. What then? What does God say? And why is it better than simply believing God won't give me more than I can bear? Well, here's what God says over and over again in different ways. I love the way someone puts it. The good news is not that God won't give us any more than we can handle. It's that God won't give us any more than he can handle. When God led his people out of slavery in Egypt, Pharaoh gets ticked, comes after this defenseless group of people with all his armies. It was way more than they can handle. And God opened up the sea for them to walk through. Closed it as the Egyptians came through. And after it's all over. Moses' brother Aaron and his sister Miriam. Composed this this song of praise. And the key line. In that song. Which they sang over and over again. As praise to God. Your right hand Lord. Was majestic in power. Your right hand Lord. Shattered the enemy. There's nothing more. Than God can't handle it's not that I am able it's that God is able just this week uh, just, just to keep yourself living in that type God is able into your search engine and see all of the ways God declares himself to be able for us pick a different one of those statements for every day of the week and every day remind yourself it's way better than God will not give me any more than I can handle it's that God will not give me any more than he can handle that's what Paul is saying when he says the only thing that kept me, from, kept me going when life was crushing me was that even if it killed me, even if I couldn't handle it, God can, does, he has, and he will raise the dead. How does he put it in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12? When he's laid out all of the ways that, that life crushed him so much more than, than he could handle? God's grace is enough. His power is revealed most clearly in my weakness when when life gives me more than I can handle. That's what he's saying. Yeah, but some of you are saying, what about that statement that says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. I know it's God that enables, but but, but it still says I can handle it, doesn't it? Well, let's talk about that statement. It's in Philippians chapter 4. Again, it's written by Paul. Once again... He, he, he's already said that he's, he's had more than he can endure. I can do all things through him. Can, listen to the context of that statement. He's, he's thanking them for their concern about him and what he's been through and for praying him in this struggle, things that he can't handle. And, and, and then, verse 11, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, because I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. He's talking about being content. That's the all things he can do. He can be content. It's an attitude even when life is crushing him. You can choose your response to temptation. You can choose your perspective when life crushes you and you can't handle it. I love the way, I guess just to summarize it, I didn't put this on a slide. I probably should have, but this is the key takeaway from this entire message. God's power in us is not just about helping us crush life so we can handle it. God's power in us is more often about living in trust and hope even when life crushes us. I love that song that we sang earlier today. We will overcome with the word of our testimony. That's a word from scripture. You know what it's talking about? It's talking about overcoming Because we have stood overcoming when life crushes us. Because we have stood in the hope and the confidence that God raises the dead. I mentioned earlier that I've been living in Hebrews 11 a lot the last few months. And it's a chapter about all these great heroes of faith. And uh, I've, I've read Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 in every translation I can find. I've translated it for myself from the original, and I've, I've come up with this paraphrase that's that's sort of my own. It's this faith is being confident that what we hope for is true. It's real. Faith is remaining convinced about that, even if we never see it or experience it fully. And sometimes experience a lot less than others. The chapter documents the experience of the great fathers of the faith. Who, who never fully experienced in life what God had promised them. And yet they kept on. They, con- they took on life with endurance and perseverance. Some of them actually did crush life. Uh, listen to how the chapter ends. Verse, uh, verse 32. Look down. At Hebrews 11 verse 32. What more shall I say? He's talked about Abraham and all. And, and All these people that we know of. Noah. What more shall I say? He says. I don't have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah. About David and Samuel and the prophets. Who through faith conquered kingdoms. they crushed life. They administered justice. And gained what was promised. Who shut the mouths of lions. Quenched the fury of flames. And escaped the edge of the sword. Whose weakness was turned to strength. And who became powerful in battle. And routed. Foreign armies, women receive back their, their dead, raised to life again. We like that. <laughs> now, that's faith, because it seems to imply that God will never send us more than we can endure. But this great chapter on faith goes on and ends with what seems to imply are the greatest demonstration of faith. Middle of verse thirty-five, there were others. There were other people who were crushed by life. They did not crush life, in whose lives God gave them more than they could handle. They were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, and even chains imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sought in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us they would be made perfect. They believed, as Paul said about the way life crushed him, not that God won't send us more than we can handle. They believed in a God who raises from the dead those whom life has given more than they can handle and has crushed him. And we who have seen that he did it in Jesus know that, knows that God is faithful, God is able. There is nothing in life that surprises him. No darkness that, that can overcome his light. No crushing burden that he can't rebuild That's what God's word really says. Isn't that more powerful? Isn't that better and more hopeful than just believing God won't give me more than I can handle? So wrap it up with uh, a little more in-depth teaching on how I can live in faith, hope, and love when life does give me more than I can handle. I listed a bunch of principles with verses to validate them, but it, As I've reviewed that, it just seemed, well, I don't know, too formulaic. And then I was drawn to Jesus' most famous, most comprehensive teaching, the Sermon on the Mount. And it struck me that the way Matthew introduces this sermon and and the way Jesus begins this sermon is all about living in this Hebrews 11 faith, being confident That what we hope for is really true. Being convinced that reality is more and better than what we can see. Even when life crushes us to the point that we can't handle it. So the rest of our time. Let's go to Matthew 5. You got to turn there and and see it in God's word for yourself. Open your app and, and look at Matthew 5 in your Bible app. Actually, we have to go back to chapter 4, verse 17, really, to understand what Jesus' teaching is really all about. All of his teaching, including the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 4, verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach. Repent! For the kingdom of heaven has come near. The kingdom of heaven, literally, is is at hand. It's, It's here. Because the king is here. I am here. The what the kingdom of heaven of another realm that exists even now the kingdom is used 54 times in the gospel of matthew most of those times 32 times it's it's the kingdom of heaven all of jesus teaching was teaching that stuff that is real and that we can do because we are in the kingdom of heaven already It's in sight because in Jesus, the king is here. He died, crushed by life, but was risen from death. And as Paul said, was declared with power to be the son of God, the king of the universe, by his resurrection from the dead and the Lord of all who submit to him. It's happened. And that means that right now in Jesus, I am in the kingdom of heaven. My life, as Paul says in Colossians chapter three, verse one is, is hidden. It is, it is protected secure with Christ in God. Life may crush me, but it can't touch the real me. That's what Hebrews 11 is talking about when it says that faith is being confident that what we, what we hope for is true. It's remaining convinced about that even if I can't see that that's real right now. It is. In Jesus, the kingdom of heaven has come. And what does that mean when life dishes out more than I can handle? It's not just that God can handle it. Because he has already handled it in Jesus. In the cross and resurrection. That's true. But it's even better than that. It's that I have been drawn into God's kingdom. God's life. The realm of the king. To whom I have surrendered. And I must submit in everything. So what does that tell us about the big issue that lies underneath the more than I can handle struggles that I have it's the question whose story am I in whose story am I in if he has transferred me into his kingdom his life I am in his story Do you realize what we're thinking about when we feel we can't handle it? Do you realize what we're wanting to believe when we believe God won't give us any more than we can handle? And we distort his truth to validate our story? Yeah, it's just that. We're thinking about our story. Or as we sometimes say, my lived experience. What is it I want when I'm thinking about my story? I'm wanting... To find a way that God wants to make my story better, more livable, more exciting. God God has offered us something better than that. He has called us and drawn us into his story. We are there now. But although we're already there living in his promise, we're not yet living there fully. It's that already not yet tension that, that New Testament theologians talk about. In some ways, it's like the period of engagement before you're married. At least if you do it the way God planned it, we have we've made our choice and we have been chosen. The commitment has been made, but we're not yet experiencing it fully. LaDonna and I spent the, the last year and a half before our wedding 4,500 kilometers apart. She was in Vancouver and I was in a suburb of Toronto. And in that one and a half years, she came to visit me for one week in May when we sort of made our informal promise to each other. And then, lost my place here. I came to BC. She came for one week in May. I came to BC for one week in August when we formally got engaged. And I had to go back to Ontario for almost five months before we were married at the end of December. And those four and a half, five months were some of the toughest of my life. I'd made this exclusive 100% commitment to the woman I knew I wanted to spend the rest of my life with. And yet, I couldn't experience it fully. I couldn't be with her physically. No, we didn't. No email in those days, of course. No texting. Just long distance telephone. But it wasn't the same. And it was costly. Because of the cost, we, we rationed the amount of time we could talk to each other. Really. None of those hour long conversations. Didn't happen. And it was a three-hour time difference. I couldn't see her eyes, be warmed by her smile, or feel her touch, but I could still hear her voice on occasion. The kingdom of marriage was at hand, but it was not yet there in its fullness. Did that diminish my commitment? No, in terms of discipline, focus, and thinking. I sometimes wonder if my commitment wasn't stronger in those four months than it's ever been. I disciplined myself to think of only one woman. I allowed no distractions. I dreamed of one thing being together. But the downside, those four and a half, five months was the loneliest four and a half months of my life. Think about that for a minute, about our life in Jesus. Jesus. And this in-between period in which we live. Once I I make my commitment to Jesus. And in some ways I I have already entered marriage with him. I was lonelier. At least more acutely aware of my loneliness than, than before I had made my commitment to her. Before we engaged I had no problem going home and making myself supper. It was just what I had to do. After I was engaged, supper seemed to bring my loneliness to the foreground and my thinking. I'd often go to some cheap restaurant and grab some cheap grub just so that I could be around people. I was lonely. And because we'd rationed our telephone calls, we couldn't talk very often. One morning I got up. I I knew that she'd work night shift, but you know what? I, I was just so lonely, I called her. It was 6.30 in the morning, my time. It was 9.30 in the morning, her time. I called and she answered on the phone. She said, hi, is something wrong? I said, well, no, I was just lonely. I wanted to talk. But we just talked three hours ago. (laughs) She had worked nights. She came home. And it was like midnight her time, three o'clock in the morning, my time. She called. We talked for 20 minutes. I didn't remember it. I didn't remember anything she said. (laughs) All that to say... But in some ways, life in Jesus becomes tougher than it is before we knew Jesus because we've had a little taste of the promise to come and we want it. We made a commitment, not not because life wasn't tough. We made it because we trusted the commitment that we made to each other. And we were confident that what we hoped for was true. We remained convinced about about it even, even though we couldn't see it and experience it. But it's even better with Jesus than it is in the engagement period because our story is already in God's hands, not mine. Because it's his story I've placed myself in. It's no longer my story. And even if I am faithless and slip into that my story thinking, even when I can't handle what comes my way, he can and he does because he already has. I'm in his story, which has to end well, not just for him, but for me. That's what Jesus came to teach. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the kingdom of heaven is my story, not your story. And you are in my story. I'm drawing you into it. All of those ways we fake it, trying to think and portray like we can handle it, defending why we can't handle it, doubting if God really is handling it well. Those are my story things. Wanting God to make our story better so I can look good, so I can feel good. We want to define how life should look for us to feel better about myself. It's way better than that. Now in that light, let's just survey some of the things that Jesus says. That means how we can see life, how we can endure life, what it looks like to live life when things are more than we can handle. Life's not going our way. That's how he begins this great Sermon on the Mount. Those poetic, poignant utterances we call beatitudes, blessings. Every one of those begins with the word blessed, which does not mean happy. To be blessed is not a feeling. I cringe when I hear someone say, I feel so blessed. To be blessed is not to feel, it's to know. It's to be confident and convinced that you live in the approval in the approval and the favor of a gracious God. Every single one of these blessings talk about something, some my story thing that I can let go of because I realize I'm part of a kingdom that will last forever, things we can let go of and things we must let go of to declare that we believe that God never allows anything that he can't handle. Let's just quickly look through those and think of it in that light. Blessed, he says, are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Because I know I'm in that kingdom, I will let go of the need to be somebody. Somebody. Isn't much of the reason we want to believe God will never give me more than I can handle? Is that we need other people to see that we are strong enough. We are somebody. We're powerful. We're unbowed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Or as many times in scripture it says the broken hearted. For when I do that well I'm declaring that I'm actually part of a better kingdom than my kingdom. I don't need that. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will know his comfort. I will let go of the need to feel good, even to feel better about myself. I'll come to the point I don't need to be happy about everything. I can grieve well the things that I don't have, that I can't yet experience. The things that I feel I need to make my life complete. When I see that the kingdom of heaven is mine, I can can mourn. Grieve those without demanding, expecting, and replacing them with something else because I, I think I deserve it. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will know the comfort of being part of a better kingdom. Blessed, he says, are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. I can let go of the need to be right to be heard. To be first. The meek are not the weak. The meek are those who are strong enough and see most fully that because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. They don't have to be proven right in everything here to be heard and to be first. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Righteousness for god 's righteousness, for they will be filled the reason things crush us so badly is because what we think because they, we think we have to have them, living in the kingdom of heaven now, I will let go of the demand to have it all now. I will realize that my true inner longing is not. What I feel on the surface or even feel in my fallen heart. My true hunger is to be a reflection of a holy, loving, faithful God. And I won't do anything to presume on his faithfulness to me. I hunger to do what is right in his eyes. Not to twist his truth. To validate what is right in my own eyes. Blessed are those who are merciful for they will be shown mercy. When I see that I'm living now in the kingdom of his commitment to me, I'll let go of the the demand for what I think is justice for me. And I will let go of my own need to have revenge, to have equality in my eyes, to extend and I will let go of that and I will extend mercy to others. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. A pure heart is a, is a heart that's focused on God, not me. The reason I don't see God is because I'm, I'm looking at God through the ends of, lens of my issues, through the lens of my story. I will let go of anything that makes me think God is not for me, and I will give all of myself to loving him and him alone. That's a pure heart. The things that crush us in life that that we want to believe we should be able to handle are often things that expose how we are not quite yet totally pure in heart. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, which tells me I can let go of the need to win. As Jesus will flesh out later in his sermon, the place where peacemaking begins is forgiveness. Those who see they are already in the kingdom that will endure and whose own story is submerged into that story will be quick to ask for forgiveness and quick to give forgiveness. It's not about winning in the battle of relationships. It's about opening our arms to other people who are just as big sinners as I am. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I'll let go of my need to not be hurt. My need to be liked. Any my story things you need to let go of. Expectations you need to let go of. Knowing that not only will God not give you anything he can't handle. He has already handled it. His commitment to you is real. It's proven in Jesus. He has drawn you into his story. And he is not going to make himself look bad. He just won't. Amen? Let's just close with that statement from Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5. Now may the God of peace himself make you completely holy and may your spirit, soul, and body be kept entirely blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who calls you and he is the one who's going to pull it off. He is Able. God will never give you more than he can handle. He will make his story end well. And he has called you to be in his story. Let's pray. Our father, we thank you for your grace. A grace that comes to us who are unworthy and, as we experience many times, unable. We thank you for your faithfulness, your commitment to us, even as we fail you. And Father, today, as we move forward struggling, living in your story when our story is the one we feel, our story is the one we want validated, Father, help us this week To see your story as greater. Your story as our own story. And may that be the foundation on which we walk this week. Even though life delivers us blows that knock us down. And brings distractions. That trip us up. In the wonderful name of Jesus our Savior and our Lord the King we pray. All God's people said. Amen.